Welcome back to my podcast. I'm Karen McInnes, otherwise known as Scottish ESN teacher, and today we're going to be thinking about communication and visuals. Essentially, the question is, should I use visuals? And the answer is yes. It's as simple as that. If you work in ESN, visuals are a no-brainer. I bet some of the things we'll talk about you do without even realising it comes under the visuals umbrella. If you're in mainstream, we'll think about some ways you can incorporate communication strategies and visual supports in a way that's appropriate and meaningful for your learners. A phrase you'll often hear is total communication environment. This is a phrase which is bandied around a lot these days, often as a sort of buzz phrase to show we are ticking boxes and meeting targets. But what does it actually mean? It could be summed up for me in one word, inclusion. Think about it. If we can create an environment where everyone can access communication opportunities, then we're creating an environment which is inclusive for everyone. I once heard someone say, jokingly I hope, that they couldn't do autism friendly display strategies this week because they were doing dyslexia friendly displays. I mean, come on. Why can't we incorporate a bit of both and create something that truly works for everyone? Yes, it takes a bit of work, a bit of thought and a bit of time to set up. But imagine having a classroom in a school that is truly accessible for all of the pupils there. Think about how you're using the displays. Are they accessible and functional for everyone? When thinking about how we are directly communicating with pupils, we have so many ways to augment our spoken word. We can use signing, symbols, photos, objects of reference, song signifiers and so much more. When thinking about our spoken language, generally it should be functional and direct. For example, Fred, sitting, rather than come over here and sit down now, please. If we eliminate the verbal clutter and focus on the key points, a child has a much better chance of understanding, processing and responding. Using their name to get their attention and then giving the instruction in the shortest way you can. It's important also to keep our language positive. For example, if a child is running and you say, Fred, no running. Fred may simply hear running, and Fred is really good at running, and now he's going to show you. A better instruction would be Fred walking, and show the symbol or sign for walking. This gives a positive instruction. If Fred is feeling distressed, it gives a predictable statement to respond to. It's simple to process, and it's a positive choice out of the situation. As soon as Fred is walking, I would praise this. Good walking, Fred. So why do we need a total communication environment? Essentially, a total communication environment means you are not relying on verbal delivery, but enhancing your communication with Makaton, symbols, photos and appropriate non-verbal communication. An autism diagnosis tells us that a child has communication difficulties. The difficulties could be categorised as one of two areas, expressive language, how a child expresses themselves to others, or receptive language, how a child processes what is said to them. When supporting a child with their expressive and receptive language, we can use supports such as Makaton, symbols or photos, which gives another avenue for the child, their understanding and their processing. The child may in the moment not be in a place where they can process a verbal instruction, but looking at a symbol or a familiar sign may help prompt them. It's really important to have these supports available at all times, not just when a child is dysregulated. If you wait until a child's upset and whip out some fancy symbols, it's just one more thing to overwhelm them with. 
Use them in calm moments, make them part of the day, and a child will feel comforted and supported by them. Let's delve a little deeper into expressive and receptive communication. If you look up the communication chain online, you can find some really nice visuals to explain what I'm about to describe. Receptive language involves things like understanding meaning and syntax, engaging auditory memory, listening and hearing, and interpreting non-verbal communication. Expressive language involves choosing words, planning sentences, considering the impact of a communication, selecting sounds, articulating them, speaking fluently, using appropriate body language and non-verbal communication, and self-monitoring. This is a lot. When it's broken down in this way, it's easy to see how a small difficulty with one section can have huge ramifications for communication. Other things to consider are the processes of attending to whomever is speaking, listening and concentrating, filtering out other noise and distractions, hearing and engaging both short and long-term memory. All of that together leads to understanding. Lots of integration is required to get to the point of understanding, with a lot of complex stimuli which need to be processed. Let's move on to think about non-verbal communication. This is essentially your body language, expressions, gestures, tone and nuance, and situational clues. Everything except your words. A listener gets a lot of information from non-verbal communication and uses that to support understanding, for example with a non-literal meaning. Feelings can be interpreted through non-verbal communication, especially if they differ from the verbal content. Non-verbal communication can sometimes mask difficulties, as a child may be skilled at interpreting standard cues, and therefore it may appear as if they've understood a spoken request, when really you've just shown some really predictable and understandable non-verbal communication. For example, if you ask a child to stand up and line up by the door, chances are you'll point to the door. For a child who struggles to follow a two-step instruction, perhaps their difficulty is with memory. You've just given a non-verbal hint at stage two. You assume they understand. Someone else gives the same instruction later in the day, but has their hands full so doesn't point to the door. The child stays standing behind their chair. The automatic assumption is defiance. This child will not do what the second adult had asked. But it's not that at all. This is why it's really important to communicate with your colleagues. A quick chat and a bit of detective work could probably find this issue in a few minutes. Autistic children can find non-verbal non-verbal communication a real barrier. These children may exaggerate facial expressions or maintain a very neutral expression. They may struggle with tone. Things like sarcasm can be tricky to interpret. This is not true for all autistic children. Everyone is different. But these are some of the ways it can impact on their acquisition and understanding of language. One way to help is to use structure. Autistic individuals thrive on order, visuals, concrete and tangible items and a routine. If a child can see what they have to do, the order and when it's finished, this creates a calm and organised approach, so the child is more likely to be calm and organised. If routines are taught and consistent, a child will learn that there's a predictable order to their day. Structure focuses on visual strengths, creates a predictable environment, familiarises routine, emphasises when something is finished, promotes independence, increases opportunities for learning and understanding, 
and creates a feeling of calm and security. Structure can roughly be divided into two categories, physical and visual. Physical looks at how the classroom is set up, where furniture and resources are kept. Clearly identifiable areas for work, play and eating all help to categorise the room. This minimises visual distractions, give clues as to context. For example, individual work is at a single table. Circle time has a circle of chairs for peers, so indicates that friends are joining us. And lets a child know what's happening next. Visual structure is where some sort of visual support is in use to help a child know what they're doing now, next and when things are finishing. This is what I mean when I say visuals. Earlier on, I prompted you to look up a visual version of the communication chain. This is an example of how adults use visuals. Do you ever use a to-do list, a shopping list, an instruction manual? These are all examples of how, as adults, we use visual supports to help us navigate daily life. Visuals are not a bad thing. They are not something to be avoided or phased out. If a child needs visuals, they get visuals. Which leads me to another point. If you're thinking about a child or a class and wondering, should I use visuals? The answer is yes. All of the yes. Get a visual timetable up. Use photos, symbols or words depending on the need of your class. See how much the atmosphere changes when you have a clear indication of what needs done and when it will be finished. But I hear you say, my pupils understand everything I say. They don't need visuals. Well, bear with me. I'm going to explain exactly why these kids still need visuals even if you think they understand every word you say. Number one, visuals support all children. And is that not what building an inclusive environment is all about? All children will find some form of visual useful. Number two, visuals are permanent and predictable. People change, visuals don't. A visual is a constant reminder and something to refer back to. They're predictable, they don't have any confusing body language to decipher and they are clear. Number three, visuals allow processing time and retention of information. A verbal instruction is fleeting, it's transient. A visual is concrete and stays put. In a minute, we're going to talk about processing time and that's really important to consider as if a child has a prolonged processing time, they might need a reminder. And that's where your visual comes in handy. It saves you repeating something and promotes independence as the child can remind themselves. Number four, visuals support routine and transitions and give clear expectations. So visuals give clear boundaries and expectations. There's no wiggle room with a visual. They support routine and can give scope for teaching surprise and change of routine. If a child trusts in the visuals, we can plan for surprise and change in a safe and calm way. Number five, Visuals give an alternative to verbal delivery and support comprehension. If we think back to previous chats on sensory processing, if we have a child who's sensitive to auditory processing, an alternative to verbal delivery could be the difference between them participating and needing a break to regulate. Visuals also support comprehension as they give an extra clue with their context. Number six, visuals build independence. This one is huge for me. If I can teach a young person how to access a shop using a visual sequence strip, then this is opening doors that were previously shut tight for that child. What a life skill to have, and all for the use of some symbols. Number seven, visuals are transferable between people and places. Let's be honest, every child has their favourite staff member. 
and will probably do more for them than anyone else. But if we use that person to teach the use of visuals, then that becomes what the child trusts and then it becomes a transferable skill. We can use visuals in school, at home, in the community, and it can all be consistent for that child. Number eight, visuals have no emotions. Visuals don't come with confusing body language and pesky emotions. They don't have that added layer to decipher on top of speech. They just are. Number nine, visuals reduce anxiety. Due to all of the above, visuals can be trusted. Therefore, anxiety is reduced and a child is able to process and understand in their own time. So what kind of visuals can you use? From concrete to abstract, you can try objects of reference, photos, symbols, and then words. This is also ranked easiest to hardest. So objects of reference, photos, symbols, and words. Now by this, I don't mean that this is a set to complete. We don't have to achieve the hardest level. It's wherever a child is comfortable in achieving, and that's where we pitch it for them. Objects of reference can be anything related to an activity. Good things to start with are things like a plate for lunch or a gym shoe for PE. I like to also use a symbol with the object. The child handles the object and takes it with them to the lunch hall or gym hall, for example. Then there's somewhere for them to put it, indicating they're here. This gives a concrete item, something for the child to hold and manipulate. Photos are quite self-explanatory. Do try and get a clear photo with the actual item with as little clutter in the background as possible. Remember to label these with the word also. Symbols are a trickier alternative to photos and are transferable between situations. You can use coloured symbols or black and white outlines. Remember again to include the word. When creating symbols or photos, think of how the child is reading the picture. I always put the picture on top and the word underneath as I think generally the child will be accessing the picture first and the word is a secondary aspect. Words are visuals. I'm just going to leave that there for a minute. <laughs> writing a list of jobs in class or writing a list of steps for achieving something like getting dressed or brushing teeth. Those are visual reminders. I don't know about you, but I've definitely got lists up around my house. Our brains just can't hold every little detail. So notes and lists help us prioritise. Now let's think about types of visuals you can use in the classroom. Use your written and verbal words to support your visual. Don't just use a picture or symbol. Use the written word, say it and sign it too. Remember this is total communication. It's using everything at our disposal to help the child understand. Don't rush through the stages. It's not a race. Visuals are very individualised and a child may just prefer one system to another. Find out what works for that child and use that. If you think they're ready or want to move on a next level, then do give it a go. When moving between levels, use both concurrently for a while so you don't accidentally remove a system the child knows and trusts before they're confident with a new one. You have to use visuals consistently. I really can't overstate this. If you use them sporadically, it's almost worse than not using them at all. This is a whole strategy for independence and needs to be committed to. I know it sounds huge and it doesn't need to go from zero to 100% overnight, but doing what you can consistently and building up gradually is the best approach. This will help a child gain confidence in the visuals 
and then you can use it to stretch and expand the child's life and work. We can also use visuals to teach for change and surprise. We spend a huge proportion of time making an autistic child's environment predictable and routine, but we can't forget how important it is to teach resilience. Change can be frightening, scary and dysregulating for a child. So if we're planning for it and teaching it, we can minimise the effects should something happen. Take a fire alarm, for example. This is unpredictable and we don't have control over when it will go off. First, you want to teach that visuals are safe and predictable. This is done by using a make it happen approach. Whatever happens, the timetable is followed. So this isn't meant in a threatening way. If a child isn't managing, we're helping and supporting and cutting things short if needs be. But the general gist of the timetable is happening, like the timetable says it will. Then we introduce some specific fire alarm visuals, perhaps a social story explaining what will happen, and then a sequence strip that shows a child what to do. If possible, have a symbol attached to you for fire alarm. Then when it goes off, show the symbol, fetch and follow the sequence strip. I've previously had these hanging on a hook beside the emergency exit. And follow your visuals. By planning and preparing for the surprise, it isn't as much of a surprise as it could be. One phrase I use a lot is, don't leave a child in a vacuum. A child should know what's happening and what they're doing. Essentially a visual timetable. If something happens and throws them off, they need a backup strategy to rely on, otherwise they're left in a vacuum. For a child who thrives on predictability, this isn't a great situation to be in. In summary, visuals are a really invaluable part of an autistic child's life. They are a predictable, reliable strategy that can be understood by a huge proportion of the population. Using a visual schedule or a timetable gives a pictorial guide to the child and supports them to complete their tasks independently. If we think of visuals as part of the scaffold we build for autistic children, so we provide all the instructions visually as well as verbally, again giving the total communication approach. The important thing to remember here is that the scaffold never needs to be taken away. An autistic child's profile and capacity fluctuates depending on how regulated they are. If they don't seem to need the visuals when calm and happy, that's great but it's still important to model their use for occasions where the child may be anxious or dysregulated. It's important the visuals are followed through. For an example, if a child's struggling, we can help by finishing the activity quicker or taking a quick break. But the key thing is we've still followed the visuals. The make it happen approach is key as the child learns to trust the visuals. Visuals are also helpful for consistency between staff. If we're following a visual sequence, for example, the staff member is able to use the same structure as their colleagues and therefore demonstrate to that child that the visuals are predictable no matter who is working with them. And that's important to have this reliable strategy as it helps with transitions. Small transitions between activities or big life transitions like moving school or into adult services. A question I get asked a lot is, when do I stop or fade the use of visuals? The answer, you don't. As adults, we use visuals all the time to maintain our independence and organisation. So why wouldn't we want that for our children? We mentioned it briefly earlier, but processing time is also something to think about. As an individual may be able to process complex sentences and form a response if they are given enough processing time. As a rule of thumb, you should wait at least 10 seconds before expecting a response or an action. 10 seconds is a really long time. It's hard to be patient, but I promise you, 
giving a child this time will greatly increase your chances of a response or action. By using visuals, you're increasing the chance of understanding, even if a child requires additional processing time. Think about it. You're given an instruction that you don't quite understand, so you take a little bit of time and have a think. It takes about 10 seconds for you to work out the meaning. And this time, a bell has rung, there's a bird at the window and you've dropped your pen. Are you still thinking about the instruction? If you'd also been handed a visual prompt, would this help you focus, despite all the distractions? Let's take a look at some examples of visual use in the classroom. So firstly, there's a visual timetable, which can be a full or a half day or a now and next. A now and next timetable is the simplest form of a visual schedule. The next should be a motivator for the child. It's not a reward, as it's not negotiable. So say the child likes to listen to music. The next could be listening to music as a motivator to get through the first job, which might be literacy. But at no point are you considering taking away the music. It doesn't matter what happens during the now, the next always happens. We must teach consistency and reliability. And we can't do that if we're threatening to take away the next. The next could be a consistent choose if a child's able to make a choice. Then that gives greater flexibility with your next. Try not to have two things on the board which are work or unmotivating for a child, as you might never get through them, and then you're teaching that the timetable isn't reliable. Using a timer in conjunction with the now and next is a helpful tool. This shows exactly how long is left, for example with a sand timer, or may make a noise when finished, like a digital timer. Full or half day timetables are set up in a similar manner, just with more symbols available for the child to see what's happening. An important part for me is to have an obvious finished pouch or folder where the symbols go when they're completed. You shouldn't be taking symbols back out this pouch when a child's present, so make sure you have enough to cover the day without reusing. Top tips for using a visual timetable. Use it. Always. Don't take it away when a pupil is coping well. Use it, model it, and when they're struggling, they will trust it. Make it happen. If it's on the timetable, it happens. Even if this looks like you doing the activity for the child, giving extra assistance like hand over hand, it still happened. As a quick side note, I do use hand over hand for modelling with a child if they need it. But if a child doesn't want me to touch them, then I respect that and use a different method. This is not about forcing compliance at all costs. Have the timetable where the child can see it. There's no point having one that gets tucked up or tidied away. Being prepared is a key part of using a visual timetable, and all visuals in fact. My second class in my first school was run like clockwork. The level of visual use was incredible. The staff all knew which child's schedules they were preparing and worked so hard to organise them efficiently and have everything to hand. It was truly amazing to watch. The class was organised, well run by the staff team, and as a result the children were calm, happy and able to learn. A way to expand on a visual timetable and promote independence is through sequence strips. So those would break down an activity further. For example, if a timetable says activity then choose, the sequence strip would have the same activity symbol so the pupil can identify it, and then have a sequence of symbols with things like sit, ready, one, two, three, finished, choose, timetable. So the pupil would know exactly what to do to complete this activity as independently as possible. This is amazing for in school and in the community. The child may have a shopping strip where they would have 
bus, shop, basket, list, queue, pay, bag, bus. This combined with a visual shopping list could get a child doing their own shopping. How amazing. Once you've implemented a visual timetable, there are loads of other ways you can incorporate visuals across your class. This is by no means a definitive list. There are lots more online if you do a quick search or your speech and language therapist will be able to point you in the right direction. I've personally had huge success with visual recipes and visual instructions. There are various ways you can prep these. There's one system whereby you can fold over ticks onto completed instructions to show they're finished. This one's a bit tricky to laminate correctly, but so satisfying to use. For me, I think if you're incorporating symbols or photos, the key thing is not to overdo it. If you're using a symbol software and using the typing symbol function, it can give you a symbol for every single word. But think about whether that's right for the child. Would they be better with keywords emphasised with a symbol? It's the written equivalent of eliminating your verbal clutter. For things like a list of instructions for how to get ready in the morning, you could attach a photo of the child not ready and then a child ready with a list of written instructions in between. It really depends on the child. So think about what you want to make the instructions for and then get creative. See what works. It's all trial and error. Choosing boards are a great one to have in class, especially if you have the consistent choose on the timetable. Having them for things like colours can also be good as you could whip them out in an art lesson, maybe a Play-Doh session, and use them in different scenarios. These would essentially look like a placemat with some colour photos or symbols, and then some key vocabulary like I want, more, finished, and help. Which moves us on nicely to the next idea, request symbols. So these would be things like toilet or help, which could be stuck strategically around your room, on the door, on a desk, and the child would tap to request. You can also use a visual to indicate turn taking, so a board with a list of names, photos for a shot of some equipment, or a small card which says my turn and is passed round in a game. A calendar was one visual we used a lot during lockdown to give the children a visual representation of homeschool. A number of our pupils found the notion of school at home really difficult, so a simple calendar visualising the difference between school at home and weekends was really useful for families to have. This was also a huge positive during periods of blended learning. There are some really nice templates online for sharing homeschool information. A lot of the children I've worked with over the years wouldn't be able to communicate a response to the question, what did you do at school today? And that's not cool. I've made pages like Monday morning and then a list of symbols of what we generally do on a Monday morning. My days are usually the same week to week, but I also include a symbol for surprise. At the end of the day, I would chat through this with a child. Remember we did this and this? You were really good at this. What did you like best? The child would then have the opportunity to tell me, point or tap their favourite and we can send this home so they can have a chat with their grown-ups about their day. I've mentioned social stories a few times also and we've discussed their use before, but just to emphasise how amazing they are to pass on information about a new situation. You could have a social story about a new school, a trip to the dentist, to familiarise a pupil with a routine and what will happen. This could be a written story or include symbols or photos as appropriate. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope it's been an interesting one for you and you've gotten some good tips about how you can use visuals in your classroom. Let me know what you think. 
I'd love to hear any stories or see any pictures. I'm on Instagram as Scottish ASN Teacher or catch me on Twitter at Karen M. McInnes.